At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Now, if you would please take out the living word of God and turn in it to the book of Jude. It's that little book that is tucked right in front of the very last book of the New Testament, which is the book of the Revelation. So it's easy to miss Jude. It's really only uh, about a page and a half. But turn in your Bibles to the book of Jude. As we begin, I want to just ask you a question. How many of you have been to Orlando, to Disney World, or Universal Studios, or any of those places? Yeah, okay. Some of them are also in uh, California, the West Coast. A few years ago, uh, my wife and I went with our daughter, Rebecca, and her husband, Nick, and their three kids there. And right now, we're planning to revisit in October But when you go to a place like that, right, it is a make-believe world. You're living a fairy tale life for a few days. For example, at Disney World, they have the Star Tours, the adventure continues. And you can go on a ride where you're on a star speeder, you get to experience hyperspace, you get to dodge blaster fire. And you know, one of the things they're doing in those rides now, it's interesting, they're customizing them. So even the second time you go on them, you're not exactly going to do the ride exactly the same way. Or you can go to Universal Studios and they have Harry Potter and the Forbidden Journey, you know, where you can be sprinkled with flu powder and go on a getaway through the Hogwarts castle. Or they have the amazing adventures of Spider-Man or Men in Black, Alien Attack. And all of those things are entertaining, right? That's part of the reason why we enjoy going to them. But As we go to them, we know uh, that they are make-believe. They're really not real life, correct? And while they're fun, I mean, eventually we have to come back to reality. And you know, everyday regular life, that's the reality that we live. There's a little rut we can get into, I think. It's very easy in our everyday regular life to drift into a mindset that loses sight of certain elements of spiritual reality. Ever ever feel like you're doing that? You know, where we just are functioning in our life, like life's just going to go on and on and on and on. Or our focus is just on getting ahead. We need more. We want to get bigger things. We want to get better things. Or in our everyday regular life, we can simply become, frankly, comfortable and just enjoy being entertained and having a good time. Sometimes I think we can just get to the point where we're just merely living out the days. Well, another week went by, another month went by, another year went by. The title of today's message is A Riveting Reminder of Reality, and that riveting reminder is the reality of the second coming of Christ. A few years back, Billy Graham said this. He said, the most neglected teaching in the church today is the second coming. Isn't that interesting to think about? What's really fascinating is that for every prophecy in the Bible about the first coming of Christ, there are eight times more prophecies regarding the second coming of Christ. It's almost as if God is saying we need to pay attention 
to this teaching on the second coming of Christ. And the spiritual reality for me and the spiritual reality for you is that God has enlisted us in a real-life mission, a rescue mission. And it's a rescue mission that goes far beyond Star Tours and Harry Potter and Spider-Man and Men in Black Alien Attack. It's way beyond all of those kinds of things. So what we want to do this morning is take a trip back to reality. And our guide in our trip is going to be a man by the name of Enoch. And Enoch wants to reawaken us to reality. Enoch wants to renew our perspective about our real-life rescue mission. And in the book of Jude, Jude is writing about ungodly people, people who deny the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm just going to pick up in the middle. We don't have time to look at all the verses, but I want to read verses 10 to 16. invite you to follow along in your Bible as I'm reading. But Jude writes... But these men revile the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct like unreasonable animals. By these things they are destroyed. Verse 11, Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the era of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. There's a lot of Old Testament stuff here. Verse 12, These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these men that Enoch In the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers finding fault Following after their own lusts, they speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. Now, we don't have time to look at even all those verses we've read today. What we want to do is focus on verses 14 and 15. So today's plan has two parts. First of all, we're going to look at the man Enoch, and we're going to note three things about him. And then secondly, we're going to look at his message, and his message is the reality of the Lord's coming, and we're going to see three aspects of that. So let's begin by looking at the one who is going to be our host and looking at the reality of the return of Christ. Let's look at at the man Enoch, and let's first look at his genealogy. Now, I want you to keep your finger in Jude because we're going to come back, but I want you to flip all the way to the other side of your Bible to Genesis chapter 5. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 5. And in Genesis 5, we get the genealogy of Enoch. And then beginning in chapter 6 of Genesis through chapter 9, we have the account of the great flood, the great flood judgment. And as we were reading there in Jude, it said that 
Enoch was the seventh generation from Adam. And in, in Genesis chapter 5, we have the generations being laid out, tracking from Adam. You have Adam, who gave birth to Seth, who gave birth to Enosh, who gave birth to Kenan, who gave birth to Mahalalel, who gave birth to Jared, who gave birth to Enoch, our guy. Enoch's son was Methuselah. There's a familiar name. He gave birth to Lamech, and then Lamech gave birth to Noah, who will be the feature key player in the great flood. So Enoch's son is this guy, Methuselah. Where have we heard of Methuselah before? Anybody remember? He lived the longest of any human being. We learn in chapter 5 and verse 27 that he lived 969 years. Now, it's always interesting to me how some people approach the Bible and they do this where it talks about living 969 years, 800-some years, 700-some years, and they're going, whoa, that can't be right. There are a few people who've said, you know what, I think those are probably months, not years. It doesn't work. You know, it says that Enoch was 65 when Methuselah was born. If you take that as 65 months, Enoch would have been about five years old when his son was born. It doesn't work that way, all right? Biology doesn't work like that. What's going on with all these long lives? Well, we don't really know for sure. Some sort of an effect was in place before the great flood because after the flood occurs... There is a decline, steady decline in lifespan until it begins to level off. But Methuselah lived 969 years. Now, in a a moment or two, we're going to come back to Enoch and Methuselah. So we've looked at his genealogy. Let's look at his spiritual heart. It's right here in in Genesis chapter 5 and verse 22. This is what we learn about this guy, Enoch. It says, verse 22, he walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah. He walked with God. Repeat it again for us in verse 24, the first few words. Enoch walked with God. Now, why is that significant? He is the very first person so described in the Old Testament. Enoch was the first one of whom it is said he walked with God. Do you know who the second one was? Chapter 6 and verse 9, Noah. Noah walked with God. So verse 24, look at it again. Enoch walked with God, and it says, and he was not, for God took him. The New Living Translation translates it this way. Enoch walked with God, and suddenly he disappeared because God took him. What's really at work here? Well, we have a passage in the... 11th chapter of Hebrews, the Hall of Fame of Faith, where it says this, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up, for he obtained the witness that before he was taken up, he was pleasing to God. So when it says that he walked with God and he was not, for God took him, it's, it's saying that he didn't die. He never died. He went straight from this planet to God's presence. And that stands out as unusual in Genesis chapter 5 because as it delineates all these individuals, 
Adam and everybody after him. It says he lived so many years and he died. Such and such was born. He lived so many years and he died. You see that in verse 5, verse 8, verse 11, verse 14, verse 17, verse 20, verse 27, verse 31. Over and over again. He was born. He lived so many years and he died. Not with Enoch. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. That little verb took uh, in the original language is laquack, L-A-Q-A-C-H. And it is the exact same verb that is used in another Old Testament book, 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 3 and 5, of another individual whose name begins with the letter E. And you remember who that is? That is Elijah. And remember, Elijah didn't see death on this planet. He was taken up to God. So these are the two guys who never saw death. They were simply snatched up to heaven with God. So that's, that's just a little bit about uh, his character. We, let, let's look at his spiritual role. And in order to do that, we need to go back to the book of Jude. So travel back with me uh, in that little book that is tucked there right in front of the book of the Revelation. And we're going to learn about his spiritual ro- uh, role. Look at verse 14. It says, it was also about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation for Adam prophesied. Oh, now we're getting an idea of his role. By the way, in all of the Bible, all of the Old Testament from Genesis 5 all the way back to this point, it has never been clearly stated anywhere that Enoch was a prophet. But we learn that he was a prophet here because it says that he prophesied. In fact, he is the only person before the great flood in Genesis 6 to 9 who is identified as a prophet. And chronologically, what's really interesting, even though this occurs toward the end of the New Testament, this is the very first direct prophecy that was ever given about the second coming of Christ. We have it right here, what Enoch says and what Jude records So we don't learn from Genesis that he was a prophet, but we learn now that he is a prophet. We don't have any recording of any prophecy he made about the coming of the great flood. But you know, there is a hint that he leaves that he apparently said some things about it. A hint back in Genesis chapter 5. And the hint is in the name that Enoch gave to his son, Methuselah. You remember the order of things. You had Enoch, who gave birth to Methuselah, who gave birth to Lamech, who gave birth to Noah. Now, when you look at the name Methuselah, there are two possible meanings of his name. The one that makes the most sense is this one. When he is gone, it will come. When he is gone, it will come. That is the name that Enoch gave to his son, Methuselah. A prophetic choice of a name. So so here's what we learned. Methuselah was 187 years old at Lamech's birth, his son. Lamech was 182 years old at Noah's birth. Take 187, 182, you get 369 years. That's how old Methuselah was when Noah was born. And then it says in Genesis 7, 6, that Noah was 600 years old at the start of the great flood. 
You take 369 plus 600, guess what we get? 969 years. In other words, Methuselah died the very year that the flood started. And the name that was chosen for him by his father was a prophetic statement about the coming judgment of the great flood. When he is gone, it will come, and that is exactly what happened 969 years after he stated it would occur. So we've looked at this man, Enoch, fascinating guy. We've looked at his genealogy, his spiritual heart, his spiritual role. Now we want to shift over to his message, which is the message of the reality of the Lord's coming. And we're going to see three things about the Lord's coming. We're going to see the certainty of it, the company at his coming, and then the purpose of his coming. So that's where we are going to be going. So first of all, let's look at the certainty of his coming. We're back in Jude here. We're at verse 14. Look at verse 14. It was also about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousand of his holy ones. So this is a prophecy about these men, the ungodly people that had infiltrated the ranks of that day. But I particularly want you to notice the little phrase when it says, Behold, the Lord came past tense, with many thousands of his holy ones. That's the way the New American Standard reads. Came is in the past tense. If you have an ESV or a New King James Version, it says the Lord comes. And if you have an NIV, it says the Lord is coming. Why the differentiation in all of these tenses? Well, in the original language, this is a past tense. It is an aorist tense but it's what's called a dramatic past or a prophetic past tense. In other words, a future event is stated as a past tense because it is so certain from the standpoint of God, it has already been accomplished. And some of the versions want to try to get the idea that it's still a future event to come. The New American Standard renders it most accurately by saying the Lord came. Yeah, past tense stated because it is that certain. It's like it's already been accomplished. 54 centuries ago, Enoch said, it's a done deal. It is a total certainty. With certainty, the Lord is coming again. Now, now turn a few pages to your left. It's just a couple of page turns to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. All of that was stated 54 centuries ago. Jesus talked about coming back again when he was on the planet. And, And Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3, in verse 3, he says, in the last days, mockers are going to come and they're going to say, where is the promise of his coming? Yeah, it's been 21 centuries since he said he was coming back. No sign of him yet. You know, the attitude seems to be, as it's being described in 2 Peter 3, is where is he? I mean, it's been so long, he's not coming. That's what some are going to say. No, that's not, that's not going to happen. In fact, in 2 Peter chapter 3, and verse 5, he says, these people will deliberately choose to ignore the fact, as it's stated in Scripture, that there was a worldwide flood of judgment, and everybody died except for one family. 
And in verse 7 of chapter 3, he says this, By his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And of course, the natural question we ask is, why this delay? I mean, why all these centuries, 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 centuries have gone by? And the answer Peter gives to us is that the Lord is patient. Look at verse 9 of 2 Peter 3. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. What the riveting reality is, men and women, is the Lord is coming. He is coming, and it is certain. Second thing we want to look at is the company at his coming. Again, we need to flip over a couple pages back to the book of Jude. Go back to the book of Jude, and notice it says in verse 14 that Enoch stated and prophesied that, behold, the Lord came, past tense, because it's so certain. And then it says, with many thousands of his holy ones. He's not just coming by himself. He's coming with many thousands of his holy ones. And that word translated many thousands is the word myriad. Uh, He's coming with myriads and myriads. A myriad is a multiple group of It's a group of 10,000, and he's saying there's going to be multiple groups, multiple 10,000 people groups or individual groups. In fact, when you look at the return of Christ in Revelation chapter 19, it says he comes back, the door of heaven's opened up, and he comes back accompanied by the armies of heaven. Who's this group of myriads of myriads of people? Well, there's two elements to it. First of all, it includes the angels. Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 7. The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. So when we're talking about myriads of myriads, it includes the angels, but not just the angels. It also includes, secondly, the saints. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 13 says... The coming of the Lord Jesus, speaking of the coming of the Lord Jesus, and then it says, with all his saints. See, the cool thing about this, this gets me excited, is we're not simply going to be spectators of all this. We're going to be, as a follower of Jesus, a part of all of this. We're going to be right in the middle of all of this. Then the third thing we want to look at is the purpose of his coming. Look at verse 15. Prophesied, behold, the Lord came, it's that certain, with many thousands of his holy ones, the angels and the saints, to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Man, you look at a verse like that and it counters the the myth, you know, coming wrath, (laughs) That's just a, that's a silly notion. No, it's not. If you look at verse 15, you'll notice that there are two emphatic terms that are in that statement there. Both of them occur four times. The word all, 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 and the word ungodly, 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 ungodly occurs four times. By the way, those who are ungodly are those who live their life as if God did not exist. 
This is the purpose of his coming. You know, this is, this is really kind of startling reality, isn't it? We see this emphasized all over the Bible. For example, Isaiah 66, verses 15 and 16 says this, For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For the Lord will execute judgment by fire and by his sword on all flesh, and those slain by the Lord will be many. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 and 9. The Lord will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. This is a a riveting reminder of reality. And it, it gets to be easy to sort of go through everyday life and forget the reality of the second coming of Christ. And when the judgment begins to fall, there's going to be no hiding. In Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 and 16, as the judgment begins to fall on the earth, it says this, Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and every free man hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us, hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. There's going to be no hiding from the wrath. Now, about now, you're thinking, wow, Bruce, thanks for sharing on a wonderful spring Sunday morning. Yeah, indeed, this is shocking, riveting reality. This is sobering stuff. It's sobering thinking that many of the people that we work with, many of our neighbors, many of those with whom we go to school, could be on the receiving end of this. This is reality. So here's the way I process this. As startling and as shocking and as sobering it is, here's my question for myself and for all of us. How is this reality supposed to affect me as a follower of Jesus? Plenty of data about it. Why is it there? How should this reality affect me as a follower of Jesus? And I'm going to suggest at least three ways it should affect us. Number one, it should affect the way that we live. That's verified by the Scriptures. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, it says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away and the earth will be burned up. Since all of these things are going to be destroyed in this way, here comes the punchline, what sort of people as followers of Jesus ought you to be in holy contact and godliness? I, don't have, I know what's going on in my life. I don't know what's going on in your life, but it's possible that you have come here today as a follower of Christ and there's some things that need to be confessed in your life. 
there's some things that need to be repented from. Maybe, again, I don't know what's going on. Maybe you've been practicing some dishonesty, maybe at school or on your job. Maybe you've been involved in some sexual activity outside of marriage, either before you were married or even outside of the marriage that you have now. Maybe there has been some entanglement in pornography that's been going on. Maybe we've been caught up, as it's easy for us to do, in just the pursuit of stuff and money and, and fun. Fun's a good thing, but just fun, fun, fun. Maybe, maybe someone's here today and you're harboring some bitterness, you're withholding forgiveness or some hurt that was done. Maybe you've been running people down verbally, social media, gossiping. All we're saying is that this riveting reality should affect the way that we live our life right now. It should influence that. Second thing. It should influence the way that we use our resources, the way that we use our resources. We, do, we have to exist here. I mean, we have to, to pay rent or, or make a payment on a house. We have to have a car. We have to do these various things. We have to buy food, clothes. We have to exist here. But here's something to remember. All that we can see is going to be burned up. It was interesting, uh, after elders meeting last Thursday night, I was talking with Wayne Russell in the parking lot for quite a while afterwards, and this was one of the things we were talking about. Everything that we see is temporary and is going to be burned up. We're not going to be able to spend our resources in heaven. And again, I don't know what's going on, but this should affect and influence the way we use our resources. Is it possible that the Holy Spirit has been communicating to you? Hey, you need to be investing regularly in my eternal kingdom. Maybe he, the Spirit is communicating that to you through a parent or through a husband or through a wife. It should affect the way that we live. It should influence the way we use our resources. Number three, it should motivate the way we relate to others. I mean, we're all enlisted in the real-life rescue mission, and it is a rescue mission that is way, way beyond the Star Tours adventure or the Men in Black alien attack. You know, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, a very simple statement is made. It's always awed me. It says this, God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What? God, the plan is us? Yeah, he says. In Romans chapter 10, verses 13 and following, it says, for anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And guess what? God's someone is you and me. The riveting reality of the return of Christ in judgment. Men and women, this is no time to go through the motions. This is no time for business as usual. It's no time to sort of operate in the spiritual fantasy world as if nothing really is going to happen. It's going to happen. And God desires to use you. And he desires to use me.
Now, as we close, I just want to talk about some specifics about some life response we can take from this passage and this message today. First of all, we've said it should affect the way that we live. So now is the time to confess and repent. If there's some things we need to do differently, we need to do it. We're to be walking in a way that is pleasing to him. So I ask you this question as I ask myself, how is the Holy Spirit speaking to you? Then heed it. Secondly, it should influence how we use our resources. And if Enoch was standing here this morning, I have no doubt in my mind that he would say to each one of us, don't fail to make eternal investments. He would say, don't put it off. Don't put it off. I'll do that next month. No, he would say, listen to the Spirit of God. And then he said it should also motivate the way we relate to others. And sometimes when we hear that, you know, I think, oh, yeah, I know I should. But how do I get started? Well, I'm going to suggest two ways. Number one, pray for one person this week. Pick one person out and pray for them and pray that God would open their eyes. Second way we can get started is this next week, ask one person. Just ask them the question, where are you on your spiritual journey? Do you have any spiritual belief? And then we listen. And if God so desires, we start a spiritual dialogue. Now, I do want to say this. If you do not know Jesus here, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I just want you to be aware. It's not too late. We've looked at some very difficult passages today. It's not too late. Today, as the Bible says, is the day of salvation. God loved you before you were born. In fact, the plan was for Jesus to come to this planet, climb on that cross, and take your penalty and to die for you. And he is calling you right now to trust in him. And I just want you to know, if you're listening to my voice at all and you haven't yet become a follower of Christ, you haven't trusted in his death, burial, and resurrection to bring you forgiveness and new life, he's waiting there with open arms. He says, I'm ready to forgive you. I'm ready to secure your eternal destiny. Don't delay in doing that. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for the word of God. We thank you for this riveting reminder of reality so easy to forget these things and we know it should have an impact in our life. And Father, for those who don't know the person of Christ, Lord, 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 I pray that they would see the wisdom of looking to the person of Christ, what he did for them, and to count on it, believe in it, trust in it, and have their eternal destiny changed so that these things that are coming in the second coming would not be something that would happen to them and that they then would turn around and share that good news with other people. We pray that that happens with many. And we pray in Jesus' name, 